The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Turn over to Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to finish up the book of Galatians today, which has been a, um, a wonderful uh, study these past eight months in the book of Galatians, looking at the gospel, looking at the sufficiency of Christ. And uh, this morning, I titled the message, Glory in the Cross. Um, I was a little bit broke up this morning as I was driving to church. I, I heard a song on the radio that played at my brother-in-law's funeral. Uh, my Story by Big Daddy Weave. I don't know if you've, you've heard that song, but I thought it was so appropriate to this message. Uh, the, the way the song goes is it, it starts, If I told you my story... You would hear hope that wouldn't let go. And if I told you my story, you would hear of love that never gave up. And if I told you my story, you would hear life. And then he says, but it wasn't mine. And I remember preaching at Yuri's funeral, and, and this song was on the slideshow. And it fit his life so well because he was quite accomplished in, in so many ways. And yet, when you spoke to him, all he wanted to talk about was what Christ had done in him, how Christ had changed him. The last words he spoke to his nephews and nieces was telling them not to waste their lives chasing after this world, but that life is a vapor and only what's done for Christ will last. And then it goes into the chorus, if I should speak, then let it be of the grace that's greater than all my sin, of when justice was served And where mercy wins of the kindness of Jesus that draws me in. Oh, to tell you my story is to tell of him. And then the second verse, if I told you my story, you would hear victory over the enemy. If I told you my story, you'd hear freedom that was won for me. And if I told you my story, you would hear life overcome the grave. And the question this morning that the text raises for us, the question that's before us is where is our boast? Where is our glory? What is it that we have to be proud of and boast in and glory in? See, and here Paul, when he writes this in in Galatians 6, he says, and I'll just give you the punchline in verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, and Paul doesn't simply say to glory in Christ, although that would have been great if he had said, my glory is in the Lord Jesus Christ, we all would have said amen. But that's not what he says here. He doesn't simply say he gloried in the incarnation of Jesus, which is what we glory in at Christmas, the birth of our Savior. He doesn't say he gloried in the life of Christ, which is our perfect example He glories in the part of the gospel that is most attacked by the enemies and most mocked by the world. He glories in the cross of Christ. He glories in the cross. An instrument of torture and death. An instrument, it would be like us saying, I glory in the electric chair. I glory in the gas chamber. I glory in the hangman's noose. 
I glory in the firing squad. Pick your form of execution. That's what he's saying. And in the eyes of that world, that would have been complete foolishness. The word concerning the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, he wrote the Corinthians. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And it's the wisdom of God. And this is what Paul says. And then when he uses the word glory here, when he uses the word boast, glorying, exulting in the cross, what he's getting at is it isn't just our actions, it's our motives. It's our hearts that are important. You know, we say a lot, Frank and I say, that we want to be Christ-centered. We want to be gospel-centered. But see, we don't want Christ-centeredness to just be a slogan. We don't want gospel-centeredness to be just a slogan, something, a phrase that we say that you know if you say it, you'll get an amen, and that's the right thing to say. It's kind of like growing up in my household. You better have been an Oakland Raiders fan because that's the right thing to say. Go Raiders. I don't know what my brothers think now that they're heading to Vegas, but I think they're a little bit angry. And in my in-law's house, it was go Giants and go Niners and Joe Montana. I don't know who Joe Montana was, but uh, you say his name and it's... See, this is not how we want Christ-centered to be. We don't want to just say, I'm Christ-centered, I'm gospel-centered, as if we don't know what it means, but we know we ought to say it. That's not what we're getting at here. The reason we want to be Christ-centered in everything that we do is because the Lord Jesus Christ, by going to the cross, made full payment for our sin and disobedience. He reconciled us to God the Father. He has saved us completely from our sins. He is continually cleansing us from our sins today. And when he comes back again, he's going to make us perfect so we have no more sin ever again. And so he is sufficient and able to save us to the uttermost. And he is supreme. And he's the one that ought to be the center of our affections and our mind and our feeling and all that we do. This is what we mean by Christ-centered. And when we mean that we're Christ-centered, we mean that we believe that Jesus can actually save and deliver you from your sins. He can change you. He can deliver you from your addictions. He can deliver you from your bondage. He can release you from slavery and he can bring you into freedom so that you're no longer what you once were. That's what we mean by Christ-centered. And when we say we're gospel-centered, that's just the good news about Jesus. That means that we want everything we say and do to be a reflection and a proclamation of the good news that Jesus is Lord. He is God Almighty. He came and he added to himself a human nature forever, the God-man in the incarnation. And he died in our place and he rose again and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for us. And he's going to come back and he's going to get us. And by faith, you can embrace Jesus as Lord and have all of the benefits that are in him. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to clean yourself up to be in the right place to get it. You simply come as you are and by faith, receive Jesus and you can be forgiven and brought into his kingdom. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what it means when we're gospel-centered. And this is what Paul is driving at with the Galatians. This is his, his heart's desire is that he had proclaimed this message to the Galatian church. They had believed it. 
Remember what he says? He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was placarded. He was publicly portrayed as crucified. And what, they, what Paul meant by that is you embraced that message. You believed it. You knew he had died for you. And now you're trying to add works to this. And you're going back under bondage. And the law will never save and it will never deliver. And all it will do is make you depressed and discouraged. Or it'll make you prideful thinking you've arrived, but it can't change you, it can't save you, it can't give you freedom. And so Paul, he ends this letter with a reminder. In fact, let's just read this together, starting in verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. What is our true ground of boasting? Well, Paul, he starts off this section with... Verse 11, where he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you, and I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, it was very common in Greek and Roman culture of that time to have a secretary prepare uh, the main body of the letter, and then the sender would just write at the end, perhaps sign their name and write a benediction, a, a few closing words of benediction or blessing at the end of a letter. It was a very common practice. Here, Paul takes up the pen, and we know in other letters of Paul that sometimes Timothy was his secretary in writing the letters. Sometimes it was Titus. In Galatians, it's unnamed. We don't know who it was, but here in this last paragraph, Paul takes up the pen, and he writes in large letters, and what he means by that is capital letters, the Greek unctuals, rather than the little minuscules the lowercase letters, as it were. And he writes in large letters, and he writes these concluding comments. And and there's been a lot of commentary and thought and discussion about, was it because he had been blind at one point and he had to write large letters because he couldn't see well? Or perhaps he was a, because he worked with his hands uh, as a tent maker that he couldn't hold a pencil very well or a pen very well, and he had to write in large letters to be understood. I, I think that misses the whole point of what he's saying here. I mean, some of that might be true. We don't know, and, and we won't know until we see him and meet him and talk to him. But we do know he has a pastor's heart for this flock. He's concerned about him. He takes up the pen, and he decides he's going to write the closing letters himself for emphasis. In other words, if you haven't heard me yet, Galatians, listen now because I'm writing with my own hands. Second, He wants to prove the letter was from him. It's valid. It's coming from the apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, Galatians, you can't brush this off. This isn't just a form letter. 
This isn't a mass email. This isn't a public posting on Facebook. This is a personal letter with a personal touch and pastoral concern. And we know this. In the, in the day of emails and text messages, writing, letter writing is a lost art. In fact, if anything, if we get a letter now from someone personally, it becomes even more precious to us. We still want to write letters on special days to friends and family. Graduation's coming up. Of course, graduates, they don't care about a personal letter. They just want the money inside. (laughs) The Galatians here would have seen his heart. As he wrote that sentence, they, those who had been born again, those who knew Paul personally, that had been led to Christ, they would have seen, this man really cares about us. He's writing to us and he's telling us that he cares about us because he says, pay attention to what I'm saying here. I'm going to close the whole letter. And he tells them, this is what your boast should be in. Your boast should be in the cross, verses 12 to 16. Your boasting is in the cross. And first he says, guess what? These Judaizers, these religious teachers that have come in, their boast is selfish. Their motivation is selfish. Verse 12, they want to escape persecution in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You know, it's tied to the cross. Their motivation is tied to the cross, but they don't want to be nailed to one. They don't want to be persecuted. And so part of their motivation is selfishness. I don't want to be persecuted, so I'm going to change the message of the gospel so that it's more appealing to the culture around me. Well, what was going on? Well, if we read the book of Acts, we see that they sought to escape persecution from the Jews who were persecuting the church. Paul knows this well. He persecuted the church. Acts 8, he stood there while Stephen was stoned and gave his approval. And then he got a letter to go out and start terrorizing the rest of the churches. And by God's grace, he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus and was changed. But there was still a whole group of Jewish people, religious leaders, out of the Pharisees mainly, that were trying to stamp out the church. And they chased after Paul, and they persecuted Paul. And they actually ended up getting him sent to Rome in chains because he had to appeal to Caesar or else the mob was going to tear him apart. And so Paul knows this and he knows that the religious leaders, these Judaizers that were in the church at Jerusalem who had come up to Galatia and started teaching this, part of their motive was that, hey, if you just embrace some Jewish ideals like circumcision, then you won't be persecuted by these religious leaders. You don't want to be persecuted, so just change the gospel a little bit. In fact, it'll be better for you. You'll be more spiritual if you do so. Do you hear the evil in it? The selfishness in it? In fact, it doesn't say they were just sort of saying it's a good idea. It says in verse 12, they were desiring to have you circumcised. And the idea behind that phrase is that they were almost forcing the Galatians to it twisting their arm and bringing, forcing it and trying to bring it upon them to where they had no other choice. So they were wanting to escape persecution in verse 12, and they were wanting the praise of men in verse 13, these Judaizers. He says, they're a bunch of hypocrites. They don't keep the law themselves. They're like play actors on a stage. 
putting on a mask, but they don't keep it themselves. And why do they do it? Because they want to boast in your flesh at the end of verse 13. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's it's pretty graphic in the sense of him saying, they want to have you circumcised, and then the evidence that you're their convert is your flesh has been circumcised, and so they want to boast in your flesh. The fact that I got you to be circumcised, and now you're my disciple. Where is Christ in all of this? He's disappeared. It's another gospel. It's why, turn back to chapter 1. Verse 6, this is why Paul starts the letter so suddenly. I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Then he goes on to say, not that there is another one, but there's some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And then look what he says here. Am I now seeking the approval of man or God? If I'm trying to please, uh, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay, now go back to chapter six. And he says in verse 13, they're changing the gospel Because they don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ in verse 12. They themselves don't keep their new gospel, which is no gospel at all, keeping the law. But they want to boast in you. They're seeking the approval of men. And so what is Paul saying about them? They're not servants of Christ. They're accursed. They're cut off. Don't give in to this. Don't bow down to this pressure. Paul was more concerned about the Spirit's inward work on them in chapter 5 so that Christ would be formed in them in chapter 4, verse 19. Listen to what he says, 419, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He's seeking the approval of God. On the other hand, the Judaizers Their concern was for an external mark, a mark produced in the flesh of those whom they could win over to their side and be called their disciples. They were boasting in their converts. And they weren't practicing what they preach, verse 13. The very definition of hypocrisy. They were boasting in themselves and their successes and their converts and how productive the gospel was and their growth strategy, right? Not only can we grow the church, not only can we win converts over to our side, but even the Jewish people won't be angry with us because we've changed it enough to include their religious practices so that we won't be persecuted. Sophisticated, cutting edge. And Paul says this is another gospel which is really no gospel at all. It will never save and it will never deliver. And so the summary of his argument is in verse 14. Far be it from me to boast. Far be it from me to boast. He could have, if he wanted to, boasted in all the Galatian churches because he led them to Christ. He could have boasted in all the other churches because by the time he writes this, he had planted many other churches. 
But he says there's no boasting. There's no boasting except in one thing, except in the cross. And really, that's an ironic sort of boast, isn't it? In the Roman Empire, boasting in the cross would have been one of the most shameful things you could imagine. In fact, the word cross, crux in Latin, it could not even be said in polite company. It was a curse word. Instead, they would say things like, hang him on an unlucky tree. Instead of hang him on a cross. They just wouldn't say the word. Because it was a curse word in that In that culture and in that context, it was not said in polite company. But Paul says, you want to know what I boast in, Galatians? I boast in the cross. I boast in the cross. Turn back to chapter 2. Galatians 2, verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law. So that I might live to God. Well, Paul, how did this happen? Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, listen, I am because of the gospel, because of the good news that Jesus came and died for sinners and that by faith we could be united to him, I am so identified with Jesus and the cross, it's as if when he was dying, I was dying. When he was buried, I was buried. When he was raised to new life, I was raised to new life. I've been crucified with Christ. So now the life I live is no longer mine. The life I now live is the Lord Jesus Christ. I live it by faith in him, the son of God. And you want to know something? It's one of the best reasons to live for him is he loved me and he gave himself up for me. And when did he love us? He loved us when we were at, his, at our worst. Paul says, I was a persecutor of the church. I was a violent aggressor. I tried to stamp out the church of the living God. I'm the least of all the apostles. I am the chief of sinners, and yet I was shown grace and mercy, he says. He writes to Timothy, so that in me as an example of the worst, you all might have hope that if God can save Paul, he can save any of you. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how much you've offended a holy God. He's holding out salvation and forgiveness and life and freedom and joy and hope and all of these things in his son. And all you have to do is receive it by faith. This one who loved you and gave himself up for you. It's the good news of the gospel. Paul says, this is my boast. This is my boast. I've been crucified with Christ. And now, because of this, he says back in Galatians chapter 6, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross now becomes a barrier where the world is fenced off from Paul and Paul from the world. He's crucified himself with Christ and therefore he says how does he say it by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world I am dead to the world now and the world is dead to me 
I've been fenced off from it. There's now a barrier. What does he mean by this? He means that we now radically assess everything through the lens of the cross. Everything in life, everything we come across, everything we experience has to be passed through the lens of the cross. You see, in the world, in this world system, sin and death and law are dominant ruling forces. They're what reigns supreme. And the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, because through the law comes judgment. But Paul says, we have been crucified with Christ. And in chapter 5, verse 24, he says, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And so there's a battle and a war going on. And Paul says, now, because I'm in Christ, now I'm going to have the victory and I'm going to have freedom because the world's been crucified to me and I've been crucified to the world. Remember what I said in chapter 5 that uh, Satan is a master fisherman and he loves to bait the hook of our flesh with the bait of this world system. But when we're crucified with Christ... And when we're keeping in step with the Spirit, the bait doesn't work. It no longer is attractive to us because we who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That's why we sang this morning, when I survey the wondrous cross where the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Uh, turn over to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, start in verse 7. This is uh, Paul speaking of himself. Verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to know that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, the cross. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. He says, this is what I glory in as I glory in the cross. And now I'm just a jar of clay. I'm just an earthen vessel. I'm like paper plates. We don't have anything like a jar of clay in our culture. Right? A temporary, a temporary uh, Dish would be a paper plate. That's all we have. Plastic, you know, maybe a styrofoam bowl. It loses the luster, doesn't it? It's so poetic when we say we're jars of clay. In fact, there was a band named Jars of Clay. But if we say all we are is styrofoam bowls and paper plates and plastic utensils, fit to be used up and discarded, but yet in the midst of that being used up, we actually aren't discarded, Because he goes on to say, we're afflicted but not crushed. We're perplexed but not driven to despair. We're persecuted but not forsaken. We're struck down but not destroyed. Why? Because Christ is in us. 
And so the glory goes to him and not to us. We're instruments, tools in the Redeemer's hand. And he's going to use us for his glory and our joy. And Paul says, this is my boast. I boast in the cross. It goes on in verse 2 of when I survey the wondrous cross to say, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. All those vain things that charm me the most in this culture, I sacrifice them to his blood. It's like the Thessalonians who took all of their idols and sent them down the river on fire. I had a friend who loved rock music and heavy metal in high school, and when he became a Christian, he took all of his CDs and burned them. He made a pyre and he burned them, and I'm sure it was bad for the environment and bad for his lungs. But he had read that passage in Acts where the Thessalonians did that, and he felt like this was an important thing to do. A little harder to burn our MP3s today, right? It just doesn't work quite the same. And I'm not saying you ought to do that, but here was this statement to say, guess what? All these things that charm me, that were my life, that were my idols, that I found my identity in, now I find my identity in Christ, and I boast in him. You know, there's a verse we don't sing in When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Uh, This is very true of a lot of hymns. Uh, John Wesley When he would write hymns, it would be based on sermons. And so he would write as many verses as it took to finish the sermon he was basing it on. Anyway, there's a verse that says, His dying crimson like a robe spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Quoting this verse here in Galatians 6. And and I don't think I'm going to add it in. I think we're going to keep skipping over it. But what Charles Wesley is getting at here. He says in the very last verse, right after that verse, he says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And that's what Paul here says in Galatians 6. He says, I'm gonna boast in the cross of Christ. And then he says, glorying in the cross brings a number of things. In verse 14, first, it brings a new identity. I've been crucified to the world. The world's been crucified to me. I have a new identity in Christ. I've died to my old self, and now I live for Christ, Galatians 2.20. Now my identity is not found in these world's things. It's not found in my success. It's not found in my career. It's not found in my family or my kids or my marriage or my money or my investments. It's not found in my athleticism or my body or my image or any of those things. It's found in Christ. And I'll tell you what, that is great freedom. Because all those other things, they're temporary and they fade. And they're like a vapor and they're gone. And there is nothing worse than to see somebody who has invested their identity into something and have it destroyed. It is a heartbreak. It's why people who have success and money commit suicide when their idols are gone, when their identity is destroyed the only thing that's going to bring you freedom and hope and joy is finding your identity in Christ and in him alone. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will deliver. Nothing else will last. 
He says not only a new identity, second, verse 15, we have new life. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. A new creation. He had been talking about this in chapter five. We've been born again by the spirit of the living God in chapter four. We now have a new identity in God's family as his children, but also by the spirit in chapter five, we're producing fruit, so we're actually becoming more and more like him. The image of God is being renewed in us, and it's all through union with Christ. Christ is the head of the new creation. In him, we are no longer, as it were, in the first Adam. We are now in the second Adam. We no longer are under curse and sin and judgment and headed to death. Now, in the second Adam, we are under life and freedom in the spirit, and we're headed to glory. And so we wait for that glory when we will receive, as he says in chapter 5, verse 5, through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. We wait for it eagerly, and it is a hope that will never disappoint. It will never put us to shame. It's a hope that you can bank on, you can pour all of your trust into, and God will never disappoint you. He will never put you to shame. Then he says in verse 16, we have a new law, a new rule. He says, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What is this rule? We have a new rule or law that we go by now. We're no longer under the law of Moses. Chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. We're now under the law of Christ. We walk by a new rule, a new law. In fact, that looks like Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Look back down to Galatians 5.22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit in our lives bearing fruit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And guess what? Against those things there is no law. And so when you're keeping in step with the Spirit and walking by the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, you will never be condemned by any law because you're actually fulfilling the law of Christ that you're under. That's what he says, why he says in verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Chapter 5, verse 18. And back in verse 16, he says, if I say walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What does this mean that we're not under this law of Moses and we're not going to be condemned by it? The reason is, in verse 16, is if you walk by the Spirit, you're not going to give into and gratify the desires of the flesh. This is incredibly practical. You want to be more like Jesus? You want to be changed? You want to be different? Those things that nag you that keep you awake at night in your bed thinking about about yourself that you wish you could change walk by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh what a thought keeping in step with the spirit preaching the gospel to your heart living by the spirit fulfilling the law of christ Paul says, this is what we have. And guess what? When you're doing that and living by this law, peace and mercy is upon you. God's peace. Because you're united to Christ, the Prince of Peace. And you've been given the Spirit who ministers the fruit of the Spirit of peace into your heart. And mercy. It's evident. 
Isn't it evident when we are not treated as we deserve, when God doesn't treat us as we deserve to be treated, but instead shows us mercy and gives us grace what we don't deserve, we can't help but praise him. We can't help but praise him. This is what Paul is driving at. And he says, this peace and mercy is upon all those who are in Christ. All of us who've believed in Jesus, who've been united to Christ, we have this peace and mercy. There isn't two tiers of Christianity. There's one. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's no super Christians. All of us are saved by grace through faith, plus nothing. And it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we are his workmanship. We're not our own workmanship. And so the cross, when we boast in the cross, it removes any ground of boasting in what we've done, any accomplishments we think we've achieved for the sake of Christ even, because it's all what Christ has done in us and through us. He says this little phrase, Israel of God, and it can mean either one of two things. It can either mean that the Israel of God is the church, the spiritual Israel, or it can mean that it's a future time when Romans eleven twenty six is fulfilled when all Israel will be saved. Either way, what Paul is saying is that for those who rest their faith in Christ, those who glory in Christ and boast in the cross, they have peace and mercy from God through the Spirit. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 17, let no one cause me any trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. We know this in the, in the history. He had been beaten. He had been stoned. He had been shipwrecked. He had been jailed and imprisoned and tortured for the sake of Christ. And it had left marks on his body. And he says, these marks, these scars on my body for the sake of the gospel, these are the brand marks of Jesus. He valued those scars far more than the marks on his flesh that proved he was a Jew that he got from circumcision. He said, my identity isn't in my Jewish circumcision anymore and the marks I received on the flesh when I was a child. My identity is in Christ and the marks I received on my flesh for the sake of the gospel bearing his name to the Gentiles. And he says, don't trouble me about it. This is my boast. This is my defense. This are my credentials. This is what qualifies me to share this gospel to you is that I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, Paul is Christ's servant. He has a new master. He has a new community. He has a new loyalty. He's been branded, as it were, through, with slave brands through persecution and identity with Christ. And he knows all I am is a jar of clay. And I carry in my body these brand marks of Jesus. And even if it produces death in me, it produces life in you. What a thought. That we would so love people. We would so care about their souls. That we would share the gospel with them and say, even if it produces death in me, all I want to see is it produce life in you. What a thought. We as Americans probably don't even understand that. We, we uh, have this idol called comfort that we worship at the altar of. 
We don't know how to say no to any desires anymore, do we? We now have smartphones that can distract us from even being bored. I can be, I don't even have to give in to uncomfortableness of boredom because I can eternally distract myself now. Verse 18, he gives a benediction. And he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Grace is the opening greeting in Galatians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace is the closing phrase in this benediction. And and by saying this, he's just summarizing everything he's taught in the letter. Legalism condemns while grace restores. Grace brings freedom. Grace Grace is a demonstration of God's love for us in Christ. It is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do we glory in this cross? How do we glory in it? If you agree with me that we ought to be boasting in it and not in ourselves, how do we do this? Well, the first thing we need to do is trust in the cross. If you want to glory in the cross, you need to cling to it. And come to Christ and trust in the cross and stop trusting in your own self-efforts and works. Second, we need to hold fast to its teaching when others attack and mock it. And I don't think that you're going to be persecuted in this community anytime soon. But you know the way you get attacked and the way Christianity is mocked is online. Social media. You begin to doubt it. You begin to to think that maybe Christ isn't enough. Maybe you need to follow after the latest and greatest trend that's uh, going through Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Whatever fad is going to make you happy and content rather than Christ. We need to hold fast to the cross. Not dilute it, not change the message of the cross so that it's more palatable to our neighbors. If we glory in it, we need to share it. We need to share this gospel with others. If we glory in it, we need to be willing to suffer for it. And in in the context of chapter 5 and 6, if we glory in the cross, we need to live in freedom. Galatians 5.1 For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. So we need to rest and live out of the cross and not submit to a yoke of slavery thinking that somebody else's rules are going to make you a successful Christian. We need to live in love. When we live in freedom, we are going to be loving others. He says in verse chapter 5, verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to sin, but through love serve one another. We're now free to love others. And so if you glory in the cross and boast in the cross, you're going to be loving your brothers and sisters. You're going to be wanting to be with them, wanting to be with the community of faith, and you're going to want to serve them. Glorying in the cross is a life marked by humility and service. And so we want to do what Jesus said. We want to practice greatness. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, be a servant of all. What a thought. I mean, that's very practical, isn't it? Like, this takes us out of the realm of 
academic what, it, what Paul meant in the Greek, in the commentaries, the exegetical decisions that they decide about what boasting and glorying in the cross means. Takes it out of that realm and right into what you're going to do after church today. After we pray and dismiss, are you going to live in freedom by loving others and serving them? If you do so, you're glorying in the cross of Christ. What a thought that your service in loving others is an act of worship and boasting in the cross. And when you don't want to do it, just remember that Christ served you at the cross when you were at your worst. And even he said, if possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to do it either. But he says, not my will, but your will be done. Of course, we know he also did want to do it, didn't he? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So don't be bothered if you have conflicted emotions. Instead, serve one another in love and in doing so, boast in the cross. Father, thank you for this time and your word. What a message, what a book. Forgive us, Father, for thinking that somehow we have to add anything to Jesus. Some book we read, some clever theology that we need to add to the Christian life, to add to the gospel, to somehow become really spiritual, Father. Forgive us for that kind of thinking. Forgive us for finding our glory in ourselves. It's so tempting. It's so easy, Father. And we're all guilty of it. Pride is an enemy of the gospel. So, Father, would you, by the Spirit, produce fruit in us, fruit that glories in Christ and the cross, that lives by faith in the Son of God, serving one another, loving one another, living in freedom and joy that you intended us to have. And may this be a a means of sending revival to our church and to our community, that as we preach this gospel, as we live this gospel, as we boast in the cross, that you would produce effects and fruit and a harvest that we cannot explain. I long to see it, Father. I desire it. For Christ's sake, for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.